2: Are you ready to tap submit? Let's explore the possibilities together. Welcome to Back Porch Writer. Welcome to Back Porch Writer, the show for writers about writers and writing. I'm your host Corey Miller, and today is October fourth, two thousand and sixteen, and it's raining. <laughs> it's a little cold, and it's raining right now. But I happen to like this weather. This is I I love fall. I've mentioned that so many times over the years. I love fall. Um, in Nebraska, and the trees change, the leaves changing, and leaves falling. It's just, it's very peaceful, is what it is. And that's why I really enjoy it. This morning, in fact, and around five, I was able to hear at least one owl that kept hooting outside the window. And that's also just, it's fun to be in that sort of environment where you get to hear the critters outside. Um, Unless, of course, they're fighting with each other, because that's not fun. That happened uh, a week ago, there's some critter outside fighting with another critter, and I could not identify what it was at all. It was just a sound I'd never heard, and I think the poor thing may have lost the fight. I, I don't know. I didn't see anything the next day to really confirm that for me, but it didn't sound pleasant. I couldn't identify it, but this night, this morning, coming in this morning and hearing the owl, that's just, you know, that's peaceful. And the rain, it's not like a storm. It's just sort of this nice little calm drizzle that's out there. I started putting out my Halloween stuff this weekend because, of course, we've got our annual Halloween shindig that we do, and so I started putting together the the graveyard. It's not finished. We have to do some repair work on some of our wood grave markers. They split in half a couple years ago, and I just hadn't gotten to around fixing them and so I fixed a few of those hopefully they will hold my wood glue was really old and wouldn't actually come out so I'm I was using one of those popsicle sticks to try and dig it out and then just put it on the edge and and see if it holds we'll find out you know we'll know soon enough there's four of those that I had to repair the other ones were fine so I was happy about that and my young daughter who just turned nine broke my rubber mallet (laughs) she was hitting one of of the marker into the ground, and she was hitting it so hard, she broke my rubber mallet, and I thought, okay, in all the years I've had this mallet, I've never broken it. How did that even happen? <laughs> so that was sort of entertaining. She doesn't know her own strength, I guess, is what that's all about. So many of you know, I have started graduate school, and I'm in the middle of uh, researching a researching project that I have, and my research question happens to be along the lines of why do why are eighth-grade girls Uh, outscoring eighth grade boys in the National Assessment of Educational Progress um, tool for writing specifically. I was very struck by that. This test, this NAEP test, it's in different categories. It's reading, writing, science, math, and I think there's a technology one. And they don't happen every year. This one, in fact, won't happen again until 2017. So the last one was 2011, and I went back and looked at 1998, 2002, 2007, 2011, all of those different tests. And that's exactly what's happened is that the girls are outscoring the boys and the, the point difference pretty consistent around 20 to 21 point difference uh, between the scores. And I thought, what in the world, How, why is this happening? And of course I'm not the only one to wonder why this is happening. And so I'm doing all this research to, to see what other experts in the field have to say about this particular topic. But, you know, you all know this. Reading and writing are, you know, they're tied together. It's hard to be a good writer if you're not also a reader. And so, you know, just, just a word of advice for those of you who have children or children in your lives. Be aware that this is a trend that's happening with the kids, with boys, and it starts early. So I even looked at the fourth grade stats, some of them just last night, and there was a similar problem they're they're lagging behind one of the articles I read indicated that it happens or can happen as early as first grade that the boys are behind because they're not reading as much and then that of course negatively affects their writing their ability to write effectively so just something to be aware of um, I'm looking forward to finishing up I'm doing the literature review right now this is why I've got all of this on my mind I need to get that all finished by Friday and turn it in and my method so it's top of mind at the moment. But anyway, I just thought I'd share that information with all of you. Today my guest is Adam Drees and we're gonna be talking about writing Cyberpunk That Sells because that's something that he does. He also writes steampunk, young adult, uh, steampunk fantasy. Well you know, I'll just bring him on and let him tell us exactly what it is. He's got some really cool covers, so we need to chat about that too. Welcome to Back Porch Writer, Adam.
1: Hi, thanks for having me on the show. This is great.
2: You're welcome. So, all right, let's start with – the first question is, why steampunk and why cyberpunk? Why are you doing this?
1: Um, Well, you know, let's see. One of the interesting things when I'm on a lot of panels, invariably it will come up, like what's all the punk business um, and how do you differentiate? (laughs) And so for me, part of that is that sense of you almost get to use society a bit as a a character, as a foil, right? And you've got this sense of, of innovation um usually cyberpunk is associated a bit more on the on the darker side and often we first think of hacking but usually the really great stories kind of bring you to a point of you know some kind of of breakthrough um and steampunk you know When I started writing The Yellow Hoods, which is my steampunk meets fairy tale series, and I love taking apart classic uh, fairy tales and nursery rhymes and reconstructing them as real. So to help all listeners, that's taking something like Rub-A-Dub-Dub, and I give you a secret society named The Tub that has always been led by a butcher, a baker, and a candlestick maker. And (laughs) when I was writing this, um, you know, I I, I had that point where I had a a, a 12-year-old uh, girl, a girl character by the name of T, facing off against uh, an adult male with a gun. And so, you know, I wanted her to be able to to win this conflict. And so you have the classic questions. Do You kind of go magic. Do you try to stick to realism, in which case she's not likely going to win? Um, or do I throw in some kind of innovation? And I like the idea of it being really grounded. This was an 1800s type of world Um, and that's where I kind of opened up and said, yeah, I'm going to make this steampunk. And that idea that you got these inventors and inventions and, and, you know, kind of almost at times you feel almost like, you know, clockwork, James Bondy type of feel to it, um, was a lot of fun. And particularly, you know, as you go on in the series, um, you get exposed to more and more of this stuff up to, in, in the fourth book called Beauties of the Beast, um, you have kind of airships in the first rocket pack that's made. Um, and there's a, you know, I find for steampunk, there's this, we live in an era where, you know, all of us have these little magical boxes that give us th- this ability to talk to almost anybody anywhere on this planet. And we don't really know how that works. You know, most of us kind of have a vague idea. And part of that romance with the steampunk period, I find is that that feeling that, you know, that there aren't, there's no kind of magic to it like somehow in the back of our minds we almost feel like you know given enough time we could go in, into the garage and make something right um and you've still got that intimate relationship with how things work uh and then you've got kind of the you know the the, the wonderful uh clothing of the period and that sense of of, of formality and almost uh, manners which Invariably, is kind of woven into that type of period, or at least how we how we remember, you know, what Victorian era was like. So I, I just I, I loved the that sense of innovation, that sense of revolutionary kind of change, um, and being able to reflect a bit of how how that affects society and people.
2: Mm-hmm. Now it seems though you you did really well, or you've done really well with the first series. It received a, a couple different awards and, and things like that. So then you moved on and, and now you're writing the book that we're today, the cyberpunk one, and it's The Man of Cloud Nine. How is this yeah. different from what you just what you were doing?
1: So it, it's actually kind of funny. When I was writing The Man of Cloud Nine, um, I also ended up having to write another book uh, at the same time uh, because of the the more cerebral nature of the Mana Cloud 9, I had to take all those action sequences. And so I wrote um, The Wizard Killer at the same time, which came out in April. But the Mana Cloud 9, what I wanted to do is I wanted to tackle a couple of things. One was um, set things up so that an inventor type personality really has to push hard. So I set the world 70 years from now. You know, from climate change and whatnot, the world's been very much affected. And it's not dystopian, but, you know, when anything or anybody kind of gets pounded on enough. There's a sense of recoiling. And so in the world of the Man of Cloud Nine, society really backed off from any sense of or any appetite for innovation, right? Like innovation is about helping now. We don't need big Mm -hmm. dreams. We don't need the Facebook kind of dreams. We need just now. And any of us who've ever had a dream or idea, particularly maybe when we were little kids and you went up to somebody and you shared it and they kind of dismissed your idea, or they wouldn't help you, and you just kind of f- feel it fall apart. That's where we meet Nico Raffaello. You know, he, he's a grad student. He's trying to get his thesis um, approved so he can go ahead. Um, and nobody wants to listen to this guy who's got this idea to bring back the banned technology of nanobots and have it live off the, the bacteria that surrounds each person, as they kind of breathe in and out, he thinks he can bring back some of, the, some of the things that today we take for granted, like video calling and whatnot. He thinks maybe he can bring all of that kind of stuff back and make real personal computing again. And so he's a Steve Jobs, you know, Nikola Tesla kind of personality. He's driven by this vision that he just can't let go. Um, and you get really a story of that kind of that visionary and versus their conscience and then the consequence of that. And the, the, you know, that that cyberpunk feel is being really at that forefront of technology. Um, And when you've got that kind of genius, and they've been kind of, you know, beaten up several times, you know, psychologically in terms of life, they, they keep something so close to the chest that, you know, some might feel that they're playing games. But if you know personalities like that, it's just they are so afraid that if they share a bit too much too early, it'll just be taken away from them. And so there's, you know, that, that kind of essence of he's got to push against society, he's got to push against the people around him, but at the same time, he can't, he can't kind of expel all of that. He's got to keep them tight, and he's unrelenting in where he wants to go with, uh, with his view on, on nanobots and revitalizing how humans look at technology. Mm-hmm.
2: It's a really nice cover. So who does your covers?
1: Um, so the uh Mana Cloud Nine, my wife composed it, so she did the same for for the Wizard Killer and we had this long chat, we went and we looked online for different pieces of art, pulling them together, or mashing them together, and then at one point she just go, she just said, Hey, what about this? And we just kind of stopped. It's like, Yes, on on every level. Um It just kind of resonated, and there was a bit of a nod to not modern sci-fi covers, but kind of almost um, 1960s-style, pull-you-in, make-you-wonder-when-you-look-at-the-book kind of covers. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Yellow Hoods, we have an amazing artist by the name of Zia Taptara out of Seattle, and one of the things that really captivated me with his art was that almost Nancy Drew... 60s painted style that he's got, even though he, I mean, he digitally paints. Um, and mm-hmm. so, you know, those, those stories, I've got a split audience of 9 to 15 and adults. So when I would talk to adults about the book, they would look at it, particularly if you're over a certain age, like I am, you've got enough gray hair, then they kind of go, wait a minute, okay, there's, there's something visually that's hinting at me that this might be for me too. And we spend a lot of time trying to make sure that our, our covers align well with um, our demographic, that it can communicate the right information. Um, but, yeah, they're a lot of fun. Probably okay, spent an enormous so, amount of time on it.
2: Since you've brought this up, you started publishing, if I recall correctly, in 2014. Yep. And so what sort because it sounds like you just know what you're talking about. So here we are, 2016. <laughs> How did you go about – learning, I mean, you you laugh, a lot of people get into writing, they just have no clue about the marketing side, the demographics, what they're supposed to do. I know I didn't initially, and it's a constant Mm. learn more, learn more sort of thing. So what did you do to get to this level of you really understand your demographics?
1: Um, Well, yeah, for 25 years, I didn't do anything with my writing. And then I had two medical events uh, really knock me sideways. And so... um, when I decided I was going to do this, I decided I was going to treat this like a startup company. I'd been in technology for 20 years. And I was going to try to use every single piece of information that I could. Now, as a dyslexic, that doesn't mean that I can just sit there and read reams and reams and reams of information. But I, I started listening to marketing audiobooks. And then when we launched our first book, which was at a Comic Con type of event, uh, here in Calgary called Calgary Expo, and you've got like 100,000 people coming through the door. Um, I just, I was willing to make horrible mistakes in terms of my pitch. I was, you know, and everything, I just kept reminding myself, I've got to learn from that. I've got to learn from that. When people looked at the covers, when, when a guy made a remark of saying, you know what, this sounds really cool, but I'm not really comfortable being on the bus reading, you know, at, the initial cover kind of looked a little too girly. And I thought, oh, okay, so it's not speaking enough. And then I, you know, I would come up with another idea. Maybe I would bring a sample after that show, and I would show people, like, hey, what, what does this font say to you? So I learned experientially, and there was a, a quote from um, one of the directors when I worked at Microsoft who said he wasn't afraid of making mistakes as long as he could outrun them. Yeah. And that's, I think that's pretty much what I, what I did you know, after I would do a book signing, I would sketch down notes of, okay, what kind of people picked up my book? Is this, you know, related to the stores or a special event? Is this a one-off? Um, how many did I sell? How many did I expect to sell? And then I just started tracking some of that stuff. Um, mm-hmm. So I guess what it was is, you know, I, I tried to pay a lot of attention to who was picking up my books and who was commenting on my books and who was reviewing my books, um, and then I started seeing, okay, well, that was kind of narrowing. What kind of people um, are, are, are these folks who, like the adults who like the yellow hoods, um, were they people who liked Harry Potter, or were they people who also liked, you know, so, so other books with a lot more depth or complexity or whatever else? Um, and I, sometimes I would just ask, right? May I, you know, may I? You know, you always have that kind of soft opener. May, may I ask you a question? You know, what kind of other things do you like, or what kind of drew you in, or if somebody came by and said, "I loved your books," I said, "If you have a minute, what, what were the two or three things that you really you, that really grabbed you for it?" Um, you know, I, I guess it's in part not being afraid to to ask, but then also putting in the, uh, the you know the the ton of kind of trying to do post-game analysis and then come up with a better plan for the next time you're going out there.
2: Mm-hmm. Now, are you finding – it sounds like I know the answer to this, but I'm going to see if I'm right or wrong here. I've talked with <laughs> lots of authors over the years who go to these events and mix results. I know that I've gone to a few events, and my take on them is I'm going to these events more as a marketing experience, not so much to sell my books. So what's your experience with the selling side of your books at these events?
1: Um, I sell very well um, at the events. So, you know, I know authors who go from a break-even point of view. First and foremost, I go for reach, right, the number of people I can talk to. But, you know, for example, last year when I was at Calgary Expo, because I just did the third year, uh, we do a number of expos now, I think eight this year. Uh, But, for example, I sold 464 books last year at that event. Wow. Um, you know the smaller events, say that it's like eight to twelve thousand people. I'll sell about one hundred and forty to maybe two hundred. Um, you know, economy affects that. Things can go up and down. This year in Alberta, because the oil economy, you know, things are down. Maybe about um, twenty to thirty percent. But um, apparently, you know, the the display that I put together, um, the back of the books, the pitches. Um, All of that seems to to draw people in. And given that we're in a highly visual age, uh, you know, covers really make a difference.
2: Mm -hmm. So when you're selling at the events, are you selling only physical copies or are you also trying to sell e-book versions? Do you have a way of doing that?
1: Um, Well, we do have drop cards, um, which – is you can kind of think of almost like a gift card that'll allow somebody to go and download it but the vast majority is um paper. People come to buy paper if they're really interested they'll, they'll they always ask like is this on ebook or is this you know is this available on Amazon is this available on Kobo uh, and it's like yep you know here's the information directly. Um I made a a at one point I kind of had you know the QR code so people could kind of go and um try to buy the ebook there and then but then i realized that one i was kind of confusing the message and secondly the kind of people that come to these events the majority of them if they come to talk to you about a book it's they have a relationship with books and paper particularly if it's in young adults um or if it's in sci-fi and they love the idea that they are walking away with a treasure right, just like they've got that, that signed mm-hmm. photo of them with Mark Hamill. Um, right. They've got you know, a couple of other pieces of art, and they've got your piece of art that they are going to put in their bag and they are going to walk away lovingly and then maybe mm-hmm. start enjoying as soon as they go and grab a snack. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, and so, you know, we've got, we've got the, um, the, you know, here's, the, here's kind of the, the gift card, but the vast majority of what I sell is actually printed books.
2: And where are you getting your printed books?
1: Well, let's see. Um, we use a three-prong strategy. So for um, places like uh, Amazon and International, we use print-on-demand. So we use CreateSpace for Amazon. We use IngramSpark uh, for all of the print-on-demand. But we also do print runs. Um, and for my smaller print runs, like 500 or less, we have a, an amazing local printer here in Calgary by the name of Blitzprint. Otherwise, I use um, a uh, much larger printer out of um, Manitoba by the name of Friesens. And so, you know, with the Mana Cloud Nine, we got—it was the first time I did a hardcover. You know, we printed 1,500 of the hardcover. Um, the Wizard Killer already went into second print, so um, that one we did 1,500 as well. And those those kind of quantities last me about, you know, maybe about a year. The, my first book, along came a wolf, the first in that yellow hoods um, steampunk series, is in its fourth printing, and uh, each time we've ordered, you know, more than the last. This time around, it was uh, it was over twenty one hundred.
2: Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> that's really Thank cool. Thank you.
1: <laughs> and you know, one of the one of the big things that I that I say to a lot of other authors is. Um, you know, you've really got to pay attention to the numbers. Now, one of the things I found is I was able to bring all those years of, um, you know, being a, a software architect and running teams and, and, you know, being highly involved either in startups or massive projects and bring some of that thinking into here, which was, okay, what are my cost of goods? You know, am I going to this kind of event? Let's say I'm going to a small con. Um, is this purely for marketing? You know, how can I limit my losses? Or if I'm going to something else, okay, how can I try to make money that's going to allow me to go to some of these other um, conventions that might just be a break even? Because I can't just this can't be a, a super expensive hobby. You know, I've got a kind of an eight year mm-hmm. plan to be able to um, get up to the, the kind of income I used to have as, that I did when I was in uh, technology. So this is uh, this is year three.
2: Now, I want to switch gears just a little bit because over on sure. – we have a little bit of time left. Over on Amazon, I'm looking at your ranking for this book, for Man of Cloud 9. Yeah, I am. <laughs> and you're, um, you put it in the, the cyberpunk category, and you also put it in science fiction dystopian. Science fiction is a, generally a pretty tough category. Um, yeah. How did you go about finding when you uploaded this? Because I want people to understand how this all works. Um, was cyberpunk one of the options for you when you initially put this in Kindle and, and books?
1: Yeah. Um, and it was kind of unfortunate because there's not that many um, great categories, right? You've kind of got um, uh, adventure, you've got general, you've got cyberpunk. Um, I think there's maybe about six or seven. Then you get to think of something like military science fiction, which has like a whole bunch of subcategories because it's very hot. So yeah, in looking at it, I also got some feedback from um, my early readers who said, you know, if I was if I was reading in this category, I would, you know, I would expect to see your book. So that was one of the pieces of feedback that I got, and it was really tough category to to crack into. When we launched on Friday, it was amazing to see it go up to uh, what was it? I think it was it was it was in the high twenties, low thirties. In the U.S. and in Cyberpunk, it was number seven in Canada, number 17, I think, in the U.K., um, which was awesome, right? So just right out of the gate to be able to get that. Um, and uh, you know, when you're choosing categories, it's really it's really tricky to find where are your reader, where would your readers expect to find your book, right? Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. And sometimes those are things that over time I kind of tweak as I start getting feedback. And again, that's, that's that whole idea of, you know, listen, learn, you know, try to adapt and innovate, and then listen and learn, and then try to correct as you go.
2: Now, before I let you go, real quick, what would you tell people who are listening, authors who are listening, who are saying, look, I don't have any money to do this. I don't have any money for marketing, you know, I, I'm... Lucky I can even make 99 cents on this book. <laughs> so what would you tell tell them?
1: You know, it. let's see. One is, you know, I, I didn't go and, you know, mortgage my house and dump money into this. But one of the things I did try to do is, you know, listen. Um, sometimes what I would do is if somebody had, potentially some information that, that I'd like, is i buy them a coffee or i just ask them. It's amazing how many authors, me included, are more than happy to to share what we've learned. Um, but it, it takes somebody asking. Um, and, you know, I've heard people say, well, I can't afford editing. Well, you know what? I, I gave this example to somebody and the light bulbs went off. I said, look, do you know an editor who needs their house cleaned? Because go clean their house is a trade for them in doing the editing, right? Like, you know, or whatever, you know, you've got stuff that you can do to improve your station. If you just sit there and wait for magic to happen, nothing's going to happen. You've got to be able to put it in, and you might have to get really creative. Um, And also the other thing is this entire world of books is a crapshoot, Right? Like the number of things that I've read where at the end of the day, after like all of this philosophy and strategy, it comes down to, but honestly, I think it's luck, right? <laughs> it, it was timing. It was, you, you can get a certain amount of success. And the thing. this is why I mentioned the eight years, right? When we set off on this endeavor, I was not figuring out I'm going to be a J.K. Rowling or a Stephen King overnight, Right, That overnight is many years in the making, and so I think of it really almost like a political movement. I've got, to, I've got to earn my fans, I've got to support my fans, and I've got to feed my fans in terms of new content. And then by going to these kind of conventions, I'm driving 13 hours out um, to go to a con I've never been to at the end of October. Um, in part to try to increase my reach, get seen in new places, because I can be in all of the newsletters, you know, emailed newsletters, like uh, book sends and whatnot, <clears throat> but that's not going to, that's not going to be as impactful as being present. And that could be if being on forums is your thing, and you can carve out a, a niche where you can be a thought leader or at least somebody providing really great feedback, that starts to get you – you know, circle where you can then talk with people or maybe then you can get some ideas for how could you change up your marketing, how could you get involved with maybe just a couple of other authors and you share, you know, you, you highlight each other in newsletters. Mm-hmm. And that's something that that I've done with, with my peer group. I include at the back of um, the Man of Cloud 9 for the ebook copy. There's a couple of other indie authors that I explicitly call out. It's like, hey, check these people out, right? Mm-hmm.
2: Um, well... Adam, I want to thank you so much for joining me. Great information. I'm I'm so excited we were able to connect, and I'll have to have you on again uh, next time you have something to share, book-wise or anything else. Be sure to get back in touch.
1: Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. This was great.
2: You're welcome. And you can find Adam's books over on Amazon and probably Kobo and a few other places. Um, And his website is in the link for the show notes here. You have a great day. Thanks, Adam. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for joining me here on Back Porch Rider, the show for writers about writers and writing. Again, I'm your host, Corey Miller, and I hope that you can take away a lot of great information from Adam and what he had to say specifically about marketing and, of course, how to sell write and sell cyberpunk and steampunk. As I said, you can find his information over on Amazon and, of course, adamdreese.com. He's pretty hot and heavy over on Twitter, if I recall correctly, and I can't remember Facebook, but I know Twitter. So check him out. Give him a holler over there. Until next time, pull the chair, sit a spell, and write. Thanks for listening to Back Porch Writer. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe via iTunes so people just like you can find the show. If you've got comments, questions, or want to be a guest, visit BackworksWriter.com for details. I'm your host, Corey Miller. Until next time, pull the chair, sit a spell, and write.